Anybody know who wrote that song? Larry Gatlin. One of the great uh, country music stars of the 80s, got away from God, wasted millions of dollars on drugs and alcohol and excesses. God got a hold of his heart and got him back in fellowship with him, and uh, it's a great song. Boy, what's there some great words in that song about what the Holy Spirit needs to do in our lives. Now, I want to tell you a little story, and some of you are surprised that I'm up this quick. (laughs) It'll take you a while to figure this out. But uh, Ken Chafin, who recently died, was a professor at Southern Seminary, and he asked his seminary students one day, what is a good Christian? And his seminary students gave him these answers. A good Christian is somebody who goes to Sunday school and training union. A good Christian is somebody who goes to church on Sunday. A good Christian is somebody who goes to prayer meeting. A good Christian is somebody who tithes. And a good Christian is somebody who witnesses. Now, have you noticed anything about all five of those characteristics? They're all good, but they're external. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because for Jesus, what you do is really determined by who you are. And what you become and allow God to become inside you determines your motives and your reasons for what you do. If those five externals were characteristics of good Christians, then the Pharisees had every one of us beaten. But they missed it because they did not have an internal, inner relationship with God. Everything was on the surface. And I don't know about you, but I was raised in a church culture where everything was on the surface. You go to church... You do what you're supposed to do. You check all the boxes on the envelope. And if you go to church and check all the boxes on the envelope, then, and if you don't do this and don't do that, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. And if you do all of that and don't do the wrong things, then you're a good Christian. One of the reasons that we have problems sharing the gospel with people is because they think they're Christians because they've done some good things. But that's not what Christianity is about. Yes, it is doing good things, but initially and essentially, it is walking with God in your heart and in your life. It is what God is doing on the inside. And having been raised in that mindset and in that culture of doing good, didn't matter what was really going on inside of you. You know, we we had a lot of sermons against external sins, but I don't ever remember any sermons growing up on sins like lust and and slander and gossip and jealousy and bitterness and envy. Those were things that were excusable sins for good Christians, as long as you went to church. And, And what God wants to do is do something deeper than a surface work in us. God wants to work in us in significant and powerful ways. And for Him to do that, He has to do something on the inside. And I don't know about you, but I want something more than the external. 
I want something more than just performing or going through the motions. I want something significant in my life and my relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, why have it? If it's not going to be significant, why waste the time? I mean, for many of you, this is your only day off. If it's just going to be coming and doing good stuff on the surface and it doesn't change you on the inside, my question is, if you're not being paid to come, why are you coming? If it's just going to be on the surface. But if it's going to be internal, then God's got to do something inside us that is different and unique, but in fact, New Testament. Now, here's our problem. We, we spend billions of dollars in this country talking about the external. How many of you have seen an ad on how to get your abs in shape? How many of you own a thigh master? No, don't raise your hand. How many of you have sold a thigh master at a garage sale? I mean, we've got all this stuff. You know, you can lose 135 pounds in 10 days. And you go from this to this, and you go, wow, how much does that cost me? Only 95 easy payments of $100. And we've got all this emphasis on the external, and we worry about our, our cholesterol and our calories, but we don't think much about our character. And you may be physically fit and be spiritually sick. Now, here's the point. While Americans are consumed with diet and exercise, we aren't concerned about our spiritual health. And that's what the Beatitudes deal with. Not the body, which is decaying, but the heart, which is growing and evolving and developing in Christ's likeness. And so I want you to begin reading with me in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Someone said that's the only way the gentle are going to inherit the earth, but they don't understand the scripture. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall have mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First thing I want us to see this morning is the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter in the Christian life is a matter of your heart. Now, these verses have been debated and discussed by theologians for 50 generations about what they mean. But in a sense, if you can kind of get this picture of this verse, verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, this verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, stretches across every other verse in the Bible. It summarizes our relationship with God and how you have a relationship with God and what a relationship with God looks like. Blessed are the pure in heart. What he's saying is, in this summary statement, happiness is a heart condition. Happiness is not external. The blessed life, the happy life, is not something you get or obtain by something on the outside. It is a condition of your heart, and God ties happiness and holiness together. Now, we've let the world convince us that you can't tie happiness and holiness together. But God says, if you want to be happy, be holy. And if you're going to be holy, you'll be happy. God brings these together, and the word heart is the word we get the word cardiac from. 
The Greek word is cardia. It's used 821 times in Scripture. And quite simply, it means this. It is the control center of your life. It is what controls your motives, your ambitions, your actions, your will, your reasoning, your conscience, your decision-making, your morals, your thoughtfulness. Everything about your life is controlled in the biblical use of that word in your heart. It's what drives you. It's what motivates you. Solomon calls it the wellspring of life. And when Jesus came on the scene, he came on the scene in a culture where everybody was talking about the externals. The Pharisees emphasized the externals. They talked about the externals, and they said that you couldn't touch this and couldn't do that. And Jesus comes on and he says, I, I want to give you a different way to look at life. And he struck a chord with people. Because in saying that they didn't have to live up to laws and regulations, but they could have a, a reality, a relationship with God, when Jesus said that, it said to people with a plate full of guilt and frustration, you mean I don't have to work my way to God? And that set them free. You see, you do not get to God by being better than the person sitting next to you. You don't get to God by good works. You don't get to God by keeping the law. You get to God because God first reached down and, and created an opportunity for you to hear good news, that God had already paid the way, that he'd already paid the price so that you could have a relationship. And it all begins in what controls your heart. Secondly, the necessity of purity of heart. Now, when he uses the word pure in heart, the Greek word is katharos, and it is from that that we get the root for our English word, catharsis. Now, does anybody know what a catharsis is? A doctor uses a catharsis as a cleansing agent. And if you've ever been to a doctor and they've given you a cleansing agent, you understand that a cleansing agent really is a cleansing agent. That's what this word means. This word means, if you used it medically and applied it biblically, that when God cleans your heart out, he cleans it all out. Not just corners of it, not just parts of it. He cleans all the impurities out. That's what this word, blessed are those who have allowed God to clean all the impurities out of their heart. In psychology, it could be called a, a soul cleansing or an emotional release. In the army, it had to do with an army that had no stragglers and no weaklings, seasoned men ready for battle. Spiritually, it has to do with a cleansed conscience. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Secondly, to be pure is to walk in integrity. To be pure is to walk in integrity. Now, not only is it to be clean, but it is to walk in integrity. Here's what that means. One of the ways that you can use this word is for gold that has been refined and it is the purest of gold and all the dross has been removed from it. Or you can use it for wheat and all the chaff has been removed from the wheat. It means no mixture, nothing mixed inside of it. In other words, skim milk is not whole. It lacks the integrity of milk because it's been watered down. When God uses this word pure, he's talking about a non-watered-down life. 
We have so watered down the gospel. We have so watered down the word of God to make ourselves feel comfortable that when we see somebody that is sold out to God, they look like a fanatic to us. Vance Havner says, you know, that sometimes when people get saved, they have to backslide to have fellowship with people in church. What's happened is we have so watered it down so we're comfortable. And when we're comfortable, guess what? We're not climbing companions. And he called us to be climbing companions, to climb with him. It it is also used, and some of you will love this, you say, if this is what it means, I'll never get there. It is used of a person who has all their taxes and all their bills paid in full. Well, we're in trouble, aren't we? Thirdly, to be pure is God's prerequisite. See, we want to measure our lives by other people. God says, you measure your life by me. Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee says, prayed this prayer, thank you, God, I'm not a sinner like everyone else, especially like that tax collector over there, for I never cheat and I do not commit adultery. Now, when we understand that it's God's prerequisite, we understand this. God did not tell me that the standard for my life was another person in the ministry. I'll always find somebody that I'm doing better than. God did not tell me that the standard for my life was a member of my family or my Sunday school teacher or some preacher that I know or some missionary that I know. The standard for our lives is God himself. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Be holy as I am holy. And you say, well, that's impossible. How can I ever do that? Well, when you're poor in spirit and when you mourn and when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, when you climb this ladder with God and you get to this one, blessed are the pure in heart, you will find that all those rungs have prepared you to get to this point, and here's the key to it. When I've hungered and thirsted after righteousness, when I've recognized my spiritual condition, God gives me the desire for a pure heart. Because I've longed for him, I've hungered for him, I want all that he has for me, and in the process of that, God places within my heart a desire to want what in my flesh I would never want. And so God puts the hunger in me. God puts the desire in me. And a pure heart is the desire of my heart then because I'm climbing the ladder. You do not start at blessed are the pure in heart. You start at blessed are the poor in spirit. And you can never be poor in heart until you've first been poor in spirit. And you can never be poor in heart until you have first hungered and thirsted after righteousness. And he says that they that do that will see God. That again is emphatic. They and only they will see God. Only the people who are pure in heart, emphatically, will see God. Not people who were religious, not people who did good deeds, not people who were nicer than other people, but people who were pure in heart will see God. We're going to be surprised when we get to heaven who's there and who's not. Because God says, only the pure in heart are going to see me. Now, let's look at the practice of purity, and I want to ask you to turn to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. Because this is applied in Matthew 6, verses 1 through about verse 6, and then picking up in verse 16. So I want you to read with me 
And, and I know you're reading with me and I know you're listening, but I know you can do three things at the same time because you're smart people. So I want you to mark the phrases in this passage that are repeated. And there are a number of phrases that are repeated in this passage. Beware of, and I'll give you a hint, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, here it comes, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, here's another one, they have their reward in full. But when you give, he's talking to climbers, he's talking to disciples, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And here's the third one, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he talks about giving. Second, he talks about praying. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, he's telling us again, you're going to be different. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect the appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, again, he's contrasting the difference between external religion, which will not see God, and the heart that will see God. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says some things over and over here, but I want you to go back to verse 1, for he talks about righteous deeds, or your alms, I think is what King James gives us. These are outward expressions of religion. He says, you watch yourself, you be careful that you don't do your outward acts of religion so that men will see it and applaud you, so that you will get recognition for yourself, because you can do good with a wrong motive. And you can do good for the praise of men. Don't do that. Verse 1 is a warning. Verses 2 through 6 and verses 16 through 18 are the illustrations of the things he's warning about. When he comes to verse 2, it looks in King James like it's the same word, but he says when you give to the poor, when you practice your benevolent acts, don't be a hypocrite. And he gives us three illustrations. Number one, he says, if you're going to have a pure heart, this is what it looks like. A pure heart gives of itself with no thought of reward or recognition. A pure heart gives of itself with no thought of reward or recognition. I'm not interested in, in anybody noticing that I do this. I just want to do it for the Lord. Secondly, a pure heart prays without trying to impress people with my prayer life. A pure heart prays without trying to impress people with my prayer life. 
you know how we do. We, you know, we hear somebody and they use a phrase and people say amen to it and we kind of log that in the back of our minds and say, I'll use that phrase next time I pray because that gets amens. I mean, we've all done that. Number three, a pure heart can fast without telling everyone what diet I'm on. A pure heart can fast without telling everyone what diet I'm on. Now, there, there's a problem here. I have a real problem with it. Jesus did not say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. Apparently, in the mind of God, fasting to get focused on the Father is not an option. It is to be a part of our spiritual discipline. But we're not supposed to go tell everybody, I'm on a fast. He doesn't say if you decide to take a fast one day. He says when you do it. Now, it is easy to be like the Pharisees in all three of these areas. Uh, you know, it's hard to give and not tell somebody that you've done it. I, I wonder, would we give as much as we give if we didn't get a tax deduction for it? I mean, we tell the IRS every year, this is how much I gave. Tell the United States government, this is how much I gave. I gave this for the kingdom. You know, I wonder if they didn't give us a tax credit if we'd still give. If it didn't benefit us or let the government know. Secondly, if I spend hours in prayer, can I not tell anybody? Man, you look bad today. Oh, I was praying all night. I was praying all night. I was wrestling with the devil all night. I was fighting with Satan. Dealing with demons. Praying hard. Oh, I tell you what. While you were asleep in your cozy little bed, I was before the throne of God. Jesus said, you've had your reward already. Thirdly, if I go on a 40-day fast... Can I not mention it to the person who's eating two desserts? I mean, this is hard stuff. So what does it look like? How does this work out? Number one, I am continually conscious of, God, conscious of God's presence in my life. Now, look at verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. You should have underlined those. Three times he says, Your father who sees what is done... In secret, I am continually conscious of God's presence in my life. You know what our problem is? We're more conscious of the presence of our peers than we are the presence of God. That's why we're carnal. That's why we can't see God. Because we become more conscious of the presence of our peers and of others and of what they think than we are of the presence of God. Can I tell you something that we do? We tend to all play to the crowd. We play our best to the crowd. We tend to all play our Christianity to the crowd. Do people know how generous I am? Do people know how much I serve? Do people know how much I do in this church? Do people know that I pray? Do people know that I give? Do people know how disciplined I am? What changes that is when I realize that God knows it all. And if he wants everybody to know, he'll tell them. I don't have to be a PR agent for myself. God opens the doors based on my faithfulness to him and my consciousness 
of his presence. Sometimes we feel we have to help God out on everybody knowing how great a Christian we are. But some of the greatest Christians I've ever met are people who would not call themselves that. Now, secondly, not only am I continually conscious of the presence of God, but I check my motives and ask myself the hard questions three times. He uses the word hypocrites, actors, play actors. Verse uh, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The word hypocrite is a word for an actor, somebody pretending to be something that they're not. That was Ananias inspiring in Acts chapter 5. Nobody told them they had to give everything. But they saw Barnabas and they said, you know, we're going to pretend that we're just as committed as Barnabas is. And it cost them their lives. Play acting and pretending. You see, you don't give to draw attention to yourself. I, I, get, uh, I get my alumni paper from my university, which I don't give any money to because I paid enough in tuition. And they got some sucker out there that's lost as a ball in tall weeds that'll give them millions of dollars. They don't need mine. The kingdom business needs mine. And so, you know, I get this thing, and it's got this picture, you know, this guy, he's 148 years old, and his 27-year-old wife, whom he met on a blind date. <laughs> she was blind. <laughs> We're going to name this building after Mr. Tumbleweed, because he's given... $18 million to our school. You know what? He got his reward. It's a snapshot in an alumni program about that big. And that's all he's ever going to get. Oh, it's hard for us not to want to give so people will notice. So people will be impressed. What I did. You know what? Most of our secular universities and even our private universities have been built by people that wanted recognition, not by people who wanted to honor God. Because they want to get their name on a plaque and want to get their name on a building and want some building or some bridge or something named after them, and they do it for the praise of men, not for the glory of God. Secondly, you don't pray to impress people. To check my motives, I've got to ask myself why I'm praying. And when you pray in public, you talk to God, not the crowd. I remember sitting in a service one time and we had a guy who was praying and he'd forgotten to make an announcement. And so he's praying along and said, Dear God, as we meet this afternoon at 4.30 on the main hall and as so-and-so is teaching this class, which we want everybody to come to, because it's important and, and we've planned this and spent a lot of money on it, he just going to make an announcement. He's not praying. He's making an announcement. And sometimes we pray to impress people. I remember the guy who prayed the best at a church that I served uh, when I was in youth ministry. I mean, he could pray the stars down. I want to tell you that was the meanest man I have ever met in my life. When he got through praying and opened his mouth, fire came out. I have seen him call my pastor everything but a Christian. But when you called on him to pray in Sunday school, oh, he would pray and his voice would change. You know, you ever notice how people pray and their voice changes? Hey, how you doing? Hey, will you pray? Our Father. 
holy, omnipotent God. You kind of wonder, who are they talking to? Where did they come up with that tone of voice? You know, if he's my father, I just go, Father, hey, that's what I need. I'm talking to him. But I tell you, it's hard to not impress people and not want to impress them. Oh, man, you're such a good prayer. Thanks, I know it. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Glad you noticed. I've got some written out if you'd like to borrow them. When you fast, oh, man, it's hard to waste a good fast. There's a prominent pastor in Southern Baptist Convention who preached a message on things I learned on my 40-day fast. All gone. I tell you, it's, it's hard to be spiritual and not tell everybody that you are, isn't it? This way means yes, this way... I mean, it is. It, it, I mean, if, if you've got a resounding prayer life and if you're giving generously and if you're fasting and if you're spiritually disciplined, it's hard when you get around carnal people not just to rub it in a little bit and just say, badge of honor, here I am, right here. Look at what I've done for God. Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you impressed? Doesn't that look good? Jesus said, don't you parade your righteousness like that. Thirdly, find your joy in pleasing God. Here's where it boils down to. You cannot please everybody. How many of you here understand you can't please everybody? Now, here's what I want you to understand. You can please God. I, I, can't, I, I can't please every member of my family, but I can please God. I can't please all the deacons all the time, but I can please God. I certainly can't please nearly 3,000 people in this church, but, but I can please God. And so the question I have to ask myself is, who is it I'm trying to please? Whose applause do I want? Whose praise do I want? Now, I want you to see two phrases, and these are important. We're going to stop here. We're not even going to go to the last point. You've got some scripture. I'm not going to do all your work for you. Uh, Notice he says, they have their reward in full. What that means is, they have gotten, the word means they've gotten their receipt of payment in full, and that's all they're going to get. They've been given a receipt that says, you paid this. They got their reward in full. They gave in public, they prayed, they did all this stuff to be seen of men. They got their reward in full, and that's all they're going to get. Now, what he's saying is, the, if all you want is the praise of men, that's all you're going to get. If you live for the performance and not to please God, then all you're going to get is what comes from the performance. If you're seeking the praise of men, you'll get it. But that's all you'll get. But there's a different word that he uses in this next one. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now that's a good word because that word for reward means an investment. In other words, you may not see the long-term benefits of putting that aside as an investment, but when you reach retirement age, you will. You know, when you're 21 years old, 25 years old, 
investing and, and, and planning for your future and planning for retirement, you know, there's too much to buy. There's too much to do. I mean, you want it all now. You know, you got to get all the furniture in your first three years of marriage that your parents took 20 years to get. And you got to sacrifice the future. I mean, you got to get it now. But he says, if, if you will invest in pleasing me, you may not see all the applause and the benefits and the perks right now. But I'm keeping your account on file. And I'm watching your investments. And there's going to be a day when you will see a return on those investments. And guess what the return is? You'll see God. You know that song, It Will Be Worth It All When We See Jesus? Life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. I want to tell you, folks, this world has a lot to offer, but nothing compared to seeing God. I want you to stand to your feet, if you would, please. Mark's going to come and lead us, and we're going to sing. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Now, we've saved the praise and worship time till the end. And if your desire is to see God today, to have a pure heart, to long for him, then any time during this singing, I want to encourage you to come to this altar and just to pray, God, I, I, I want to have my focus right. And so you can come to the altar and pray. A staff member will pray with you. There are staff members here at the front. If you want to come and be a part of this church family, if you want to come to be saved today, then you can come to the front today and we'll share with you how you can have a personal relationship with Christ. But the altar's open. This is not just about us performing. This is about us worshiping God and seeing Him and desiring Him. So Mark's going to lead us, and we're going to sing, and you've got a chance to respond during this time right now.
Take me and mold me. Take me. tell you, I want a blessed life, but I won't get it by what I obtain or accomplish in the flesh. 
I won't have a blessed life by the house I live in or the car I drive or the money I have in the bank. I won't have a blessed life by the clothes I wear. I have a blessed life if I can become a climbing companion with God. And say, Lord, I know where you are and I know I'm not there yet, but I have set my face like a flint to get there. And I want nothing to detract me or deter me in any way from doing all through my life what you want me to do with it. You know, when we get to heaven, there are going to be some investments there. Some of them will be wood, hay, and stubble. Some will be gold, silver, and precious stone. Gold, silver, and precious stone doesn't take up as much room as wood, hay, and stubble but it's more valuable. I'd rather have one stone, one nugget of gold, than have piles and piles of wood, hay, and stubble. Because when God tests the works of my life, some will go up in smoke. Paul says we'll be saved as by fire. But some will remain. Our inheritance in heaven is not our gold, silver, and precious stone, our works. Our inheritance is laid up in heaven, and that inheritance is Jesus himself. 